Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of Book 13, Chapter 9. Do the Russian proclamations seem Orwellian to you? Why or why not? With regard to legal matters, immediately after the fires, he gave orders to find and execute the incendiaries. And the scoundrel Rostopchin was punished by an order to burn down his houses. What do you think of the Rostopchin character and did he deserve this? <clears throat> In the Medium article, it is mentioned that Napoleon is trying to control too much of Moscow's affairs with his proclamations. That human beings will naturally rebel against too much control. What do you think? <clears throat> uh, Alright. Twisted Every Way says, Not only is Napoleon, Napoleon trying to control too much in Moscow, but like he's the new guy in town from another country... Who just bested your army? What residents would take kindly to that? Stephen Foxbat said, "Delusions of being God's gift." FDLP says, "Sounds like some world leaders during the pandemic. Everything is a okay. It's been decreed. You are called upon to realize the fatherly intentions of His Majesty, the Emperor and King, and to work with him for the public good. Lay your respect and trust at his feet, and lose no time in joining with us." Yeah, the kind of stern insistence, or even like belief that everything is okay, is a powerful tool. Um, it's soothing, and sometimes in a crisis people want to be soothed, and they will just allow that to be their belief. So uh, Napoleon's gone for it, but is it going to work? I don't think it's going to work. I think the, sh- the cracks are showing in his uh, army and his position. Um, Like, they're calling his bluff, aren't they? He's saying, everything's fine, just be French now, (laughs) essentially. Or, like, just be cool with us being here. But they know that he's bluffing, and he needs them to be okay with it, really. Chapter 10 goes like this. But, strange to say, All these measures, efforts and plans which were not at all worse than others issued in similar circumstances did not affect the essence of the matter, but like the hands of a clock detached from the mechanism, swung about in an arbitrary and aimless way without engaging the cogwheels. With reference to the military side, the plan of campaign, that work of genius of which there's remarks that his genius never devised anything more profound, more skillful or more admirable, and enters into a polemic with M. Fane to prove that this work of genius must be referred not to the 4th but to the 15th of October. That plan never was or could be executed, for it was quite out of touch with the facts of the case. The fortifying of the Kremlin, for which La Mosque, as Napoleon termed the Church of Basil the Beautified, was to have been razed to the ground proved quite useless, the mining of the Kremlin only helped toward fulfilling Napoleon's wish that it should be blown up when he left Moscow. As a child wants the floor on which he has heard himself to be beaten, the pursuit of the Russian army about which Napoleon was so concerned produced an unheard of result. The French generals lost touch with the Russian army of 60,000 men, and according to theirs, it was only eventually found like a lost pin by the skill and apparently the genius of Murat. With reference to diplomacy, all Napoleon's arguments 
as to his magnanimity and justice, both to Tutolmin and to Yakovlev, whose chief concern was to obtain a great greatcoat and a conveyance, proved useless. Alexander did not receive these envoys and did not reply to their ambassage. With regard to legal matters, after the execution of the supposed incendiaries, the rest of Moscow burned down. With regard to administrative matters, the establishment of a municipality did not stop the robberies and was only of use to certain people who formed part of that municipality, another pretext of preserving order looted Moscow or saved their own property from being looted. With regard to religion, as to which in Egypt matters had so easily been settled by Napoleon's visit to a mosque, no results were achieved. Two or three priests who were found in Moscow did try to carry out Napoleon's wish, but one of them was slapped in the face by a French soldier while conducting service, and a French official reported of another that the priest whom I found and invited to say mass cleaned and locked up the church. That night the doors were again broken open, the padlocks smashed, the books mutilated and others' disorders perpetrated. With reference to commerce, the proclamation to industrious workmen and to peasants evoked no response. There were no industrious workmen and the peasants caught the commissaries who ventured too far out of the town with the proclamation and killed them. As to the theatres for the entertainment of the people and the troops, these did not meet with success either. The theatres set up in the Kremlin and in Posnikov's house were closed again at once because the actors and actresses were robbed. Even philanthropy did not have the desired effect. The genuine, as well as the false paper money which flooded Moscow, lost its value. The French, collecting booty, cared only for gold. Not only was the paper money valueless, which Napoleon so graciously distributed to the unfortunate, but even silver lost its value in relation to gold. But the most amazing example of the ineffectiveness of the orders given by the authorities at that time was Napoleon's attempt to stop the looting and re-establish discipline. This is what the army authorities were reporting. Looting continues in the city despite the decrees against it. Order is not yet restored and not a single merchant is carrying on trade in a lawful manner. The sutlers alone venture to trade, and they sell stolen goods. The neighbourhood of my ward continues to be pillaged by soldiers of the Third Corps, who, not satisfied with taking from the unfortunate inhabitants hiding in the cellars the little they have left, even have the ferocity to wound them with their sabres, as I have repeatedly witnessed. Nothing new except that the soldiers are robbing and pillaging, October 9th. Robbery and pillaging continue... There is a band of thieves in our district who ought to be arrested by a strong force, October 11. The emperor is extremely displeased that despite the strict orders to stop pillage, parties of marauding guards are continually seen returning to the Kremlin. Among the old guard, disorder and pillage were renewed more violently than ever yesterday, evening, last night and today. The Emperor sees with regret that the picked soldiers appointed to guard his person who should set an example of discipline carry disobedience to such a point that they break into the cellars and stores containing army supplies. Others have disgraced themselves to the extent of disobeying sentinels and officers and have abused and beaten them. 
The Grand Marshal of the Palace, wrote the Governor, complains bitterly that, in spite of repeated orders, the soldiers continue to commit nuisances in all the courtyards and even under the very windows of the Emperor. That army, like a herd of cattle, run wild and trampling underfoot the provender which might have saved it from starvation, disintegrated and perished with each additional day it remained in Moscow, but it did not go away. It began to run away only when suddenly seized by a panic caused by the capture of transport trains on the Smolensk Road and by the Battle of Tarutino. The news of that Battle of Tarutino, unexpectedly received by Napoleon at a review, evoked in him a desire to punish the Russians, Theus says, and he issued the order for departure which the whole army was demanding. Fleeing from Moscow, the soldiers took with them everything they had stolen. Napoleon, too, carried away his own personal tracer, but on seeing the baggage trains that impeded the army, he was, Theus said, horror-struck, and yet, with his experience of war, he did not order all the superfluous vehicles to be burned, as he had done with those of a certain marshal when approaching Moscow. He gazed at the caliches and carriages in which soldiers were riding and remarked that it was a very good thing, as those vehicles could be used to carry provisions, the sick and the wounded. The plight of the whole army resembled that of a wounded animal which feels it is perishing and does not know what it is doing. To study the skillful tactics and aims of Napoleon and his army from the time it entered Moscow till it was destroyed is like studying the dying leaps of sh and shudders of a mortally wounded animal. Very often a wounded animal, hearing a rustle, rushes straight at the hunter's gun, runs forward and back again, and hastens its own end. Napoleon, under pressure from his whole army, did the same thing. The rustle of the Battle of Tarutino frightened the beast, and it rushed forward onto the hunter's gun, reached him, turned back and finally, like any wild beast, ran back along the most disadvantageous and dangerous path where the old scent was familiar. During the whole of that period, Napoleon, who seems to us to have been the leader of all these movements, as the figurehead of a ship may seem to a savage to guide the vessel, acted like a child who, holding a couple of strings inside a carriage, thinks he is driving it. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. Napoleon, like a child holding a couple of strings inside a carriage, thinking he's driving it. I feel like this is one of those chapters where the last line sums up the whole chapter, and I'm glad because I did zone out for a couple of minutes there. <laughs> I'll be honest. But I think I got the gist of it. I'll find out tomorrow when I read the comments. All right, guys, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.